on the Old Testament Jewish scripture. Um, it may be that other questions um, about the Lord in the Old Testament had been circulating for other reasons. The, the Lord, though he was a Jew and was presenting himself as an authoritative teacher, um, he wasn't a Pharisee. And he hadn't attended any of the rabbinical schools where their teachers were trained in that day. Instead, he was actually even found criticizing some of those official teachers. And, and uh, some of his teachings seemed to be conflicting with theirs at multiple points. And in addition to all of that, we actually hear people questioning him later because he spent a lot of time with publicans and sinners, kind of the, the outcasts of their culture. The religious leaders did not do that. So he isn't, he isn't living by some of the rules and regulations of the Pharisees. Um, he was actually confrontational with that group that was the you know, the most respected teachers of the day. He wasn't trained in um, the official seminary. His teaching often wasn't expounding Old Testament texts. And all of that led some people to, you know, wonder, does he not even believe in the, the sacred writings? Is he teaching something completely new? Is he going to end up suggesting just an, an abolishment of what we've had? And though that was a particular point of, of stumbling for some in Jesus' audience in that day, the fact is that the questions about Jesus and the relationship of Christianity to the Old Testament, those aren't just old. Those are relevant to our, to our day. There, there are those today who will actually speak of the Jews' religion, represented by the Old Testament, and Christianity as represented by the New, New Testament, as if you're talking about two different religions. Some see the Old Testament as just kind of a collection of tales. I actually had a Jewish woman and her son, highly educated, on a plane uh, with him, and I had this woman really tell me that they, she viewed her own Old Testament scriptures as just kind of a collection of tales of their, you know, ethnic group. They were passed along to just kind of help the people maintain their identity. But she would nowhere see this as the authoritative word of God. And so, if, if even Jews themselves, others would see it that way, they would just see it, you know, this is, a, this is a Hebrew thing and kind of a collection of Hebrew writings. Um, that's why things like the creation narrative ends up up for debate. Even reinterpretation on the, on, on the basis of so-called science. Some recognize that the foundational nature of... Uh, the Old Testament, I'm going to stop because I don't know what's going on, but I'm totally, uh, what do you need to do? All right, the whole network is down. You know what my wife did in kindergarten graduation when we were out, they were outside this year? The kindergartners got up there and she said, all right, now everybody raise your right hand. Go ahead and do it with me. Let's see if it helps us wave at mom and dad. You can wave at me. 
Okay, now everybody raise your left hand. All right, uh, now raise them both. All right. So um, uh, that was probably about the worst five minutes of my preaching experience recently because, uh, you know, normally if it's my kids, it's like my tie or what did I say wrong or... Uh, but um, I'm looking out here, and, and uh, we, we've all lost it, all right? So <laughs> let's see what we can do um, to, to get back into Matthew 5 and uh, forget whatever's happening with uh, technology, right? Uh, there are people that um, even closer to us, I'm talking about Bible-believing people, Bible students, that will recognize the foundational nature of the Old Testament as, as pointing to Christ and as preparation for Christ. But they almost treat the Old Testament as if it has no real value for the believer as a whole, beyond just kind of pointing to Christ. It, um, you know, we ought to just don't spend much time there, just kind of set aside, spend all your time in the New Testament. And, and they seem to be bolstered in that. Some of you have been memorizing the Gospel of John with us. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And so you can almost uh, kind of pit certain things together, and, and scriptural texts seem to indicate that. And some people are genuinely confused. I was actually in the middle of studying this passage when I received an email from another pastor asking me questions about the believer's relationship to the law. And I'm not going into all of that or reading even big chunks of it, but he mentioned several verses. He mentioned like Romans 6, 14, for instance, you are not under the law, but under, under grace. And, and he had some other texts. And, and when I read his questions, I, I did have considerable sympathy with him in general. One of the things that he cited... Uh, was a particular example of, of the Old Testament's teaching on tithing. Um, does, does the teaching of the Old Testament concerning tithing communicate something that is, is anyway an obligation for New Testament believers? And I have actually encountered multiple Christians who believe that uh, encouraging uh, believers to free themselves from unnecessary baggage caused by obligation to Old Testament emphases such as tithing is something that is necessary for their Christian life to really progress. All right, so, so against the backdrop of what was happening in Jesus' day and people questioning, where do you stand with the sacred writings? Where do you stand in the Old Testament? And against the backdrop of people wrestling, you know, what, what should our thoughts about our Christian experience in the Old Testament be? We want to actually just listen to what Jesus says. What did he say about his relationship? And, and I'm going to suggest something to you. I'm going to use a word to summarize it, use some others to kind of fill it in, and then, and then go back and, and to argue for that. But I believe in our text this morning, verses 17 to 19, Jesus affirms the Old Testament. He affirms it. He affirms it in such a way that, that he almost like reasserts its validity, its relevancy. Um, he upholds its authority. He's going to proclaim a continuity, 
All of that I'm including in the sense of Jesus affirming the Old Testament. Now, how does he do that? Well, he does it, first of all, right here in verse number 17, through direct statement that he did not come to abolish it, but he came to fulfill it. His direct statement is that he didn't come to abolish. Now, the word in uh, verse number 17, think not that I am come to destroy, is a strong term in, in chapter 24 right here in Matthew. It's going to be used to describe demolishing the temple. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it ends up being used to describe the dissolving of our earthly bodies, our physical bodies. The term, if you're just talking about kind of right at its root, what it literally means, it means to throw down. All right, so if you've ever taken something and you actually threw it on the ground hard, on purpose, so that it smashed in pieces and wouldn't be used anymore. Okay? That's the word that Jesus is using. So again, it figuratively has the idea of abolishing or, or doing away with. And so right from the beginning, Jesus is saying that he didn't come to do that with the law and the prophets. And again, we've seen that already in Matthew as describing the whole Testament. He, he had no intention of, as it were, just throwing down and breaking to pieces and being done with the Old Testament. On the contrary, his intention was, was to fill it up, you can see there. I'm not come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am come to fulfill in the end of it. Now, that word, fulfill, doesn't mean merely that Jesus would keep the law by doing the things that he commanded. He, of course, did keep the law. And in that sense, he fulfilled all of its righteousness. But there's more to this word than that. And I would also add that to fulfill doesn't merely include um, being kind of the termination of various prophecies. And we can think of Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in Jesus, in that sense, terminating in Jesus. And, and obviously that is true that, that many of those can be traced. And the precision is really stunning and it's encouraging to our faith. But to fulfill is more than just keep as in being obedient to. Jesus didn't come to just obey the law. He did it, but he didn't come to just obey. He didn't come to just, in that sense, fulfill the prophecies. So they would terminate in him. Right? This word is a word that means um, to reveal the full depth of something. To kind of fill up the significance of it. He, he came to reveal uh, the, the depth and the substance that the law was intended to hold. It was like he came to let its glory even really shine. I actually read what I thought was a masterful illustration of this. We, ha we have a tune that today we just typically call Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee. All right? I don't know if you can even get that in, in your mind right now. You probably can. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. 
right? And I'm even doing it like that because um, that, that little tune is so simple that it is often included in something like beginner piano books, okay, and, and other instrumental lesson books. Um, and I'd rather have that than um, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star or Hot Cross Buns or whatever else, right? If you've been, you've, you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. And so it, it's really neat when they can move into Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee. But that was, that tune is actually best known for being the theme of the final movement of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And it can be really pleasant in just a beginner picking it out on the piano in its simplicity. But if you want to have a, a clearer idea of what Beethoven had in mind with that composition, then what you want to do is listen to one of the world's great orchestras and performing it with a full choir and four just magnificent soloist voices I actually watched a performance like that of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Okay. And, and the whole thing is just incredibly awe-inspiring, blowing you away with the fullness of the sound and the magnificence of it. And, and it was for that kind of setting okay, that Beethoven composed that piece. And it leaves a totally different impression than you know, the beginner piano book version. We have um, a good friend who is from Nova Scotia who met her Scottish husband at, at Bob Jones while she was studying piano and voice and he was in seminary. And she continues to play and she teaches piano. But from time to time she will post on Facebook uh, a video of some great pianist that is playing a, a particular piece with excellence and style uh, that she regards as unrivaled. And, and I have several times noted her saying something about, I've been playing this piece for years, but I can't bring out the excellence, like so-and-so. You've just got to listen to it, right? You know that concept, All right, Brethren, this, this is the idea of fulfill, the word fulfill, as it's used here of Jesus in the Old Testament Scripture. The details surrounding his life would draw attention to statements that would have just remained obscure to us. Um, his life lived would go on to embody the highest ideals of, of both the letter and the spirit of the law. His teaching will actually expound on the, the intent that God had for the use of the law in reference to the heart of man. And certainly his death on the cross... Uh, as the sacrificial lamb, his burial, his resurrection, even things that we've seen earlier in our service today, <clears throat> all of that illuminates the many types and ceremonies that were intended to foreshadow the gospel of the grace of God. The, the Holy Spirit that he foretold, he would send to those who believe on him, would be the source of his people experientially and, and progressively, uh, Romans chapter 8 says, living out the righteous demands of the law. All right, all of these dynamics, from Jesus' life to the fulfillment of the prophecy to his expounding on it in his own teaching to what he gives the believer through salvation and the experience of it, all of that is part of what 
he came to do as an affirmation of the entirety of the Old Testament. Okay, he's the one in every respect that fills up what the Old Testament was really driving at. He didn't came to throw it down and abolish it. He came to reveal the, the true glory of it as it's seen in him and all that he is. So he affirms the Old Testament by direct statement. Right? He secondly affirms the Old Testament through promising its preservation. And promising, you can even add, its written preservation. Look at verse 18. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. The word that is translated jot is intended to represent the smallest Hebrew letter. Right? And the word that is translated tittle, not one jot or one tittle, would represent the smallest stroke or particle of a Hebrew letter. So in English, a jot would be like the dot that we put above the letter I, dotting the I. All right? it, it actually is a little bit like an apostrophe. A tittle would be like the difference between a P and an R. All right, so you wrote yourself a capital P and a capital R and the angle that makes the difference. The small angled line, that's, that would be like the tittle. All right, now, you talk about dotting an I and, and, and the small angled line, and our minds, our minds might tend to say, you know, I'm not sure he needed to go to that extreme to make that point. Um, you know, even, I mean, we're not even Hebrew readers, and even those people, if they were still Hebrew readers, they were reading copies of copies. So why did he have to go to that point? But brethren, we need to be reminded that these words didn't come out of Jesus flippantly. Like we, we make an exaggerated statement to try to prove a point. He actually prefaced, look at it again, verse 18. He prefaced the remarks by saying, Verily I say unto you. I mean, that word translated verily is found about 150 times in the New Testament and about 50 of them, right at 50, it, it is translated amen. So we tend to use it, you know, at the, at the end of a song or the end of a phrase to say, I agree. All right. Jesus used it ahead of statements for emphasis. And he often did it with the words like we have here. Verily I what? Verily I say unto you, it, this is something like a solemn formula to emphasize importance and, and to make the highest of claims for reliability. So this is no exaggeration on Jesus' part. And this promise of the preservation of the written word of God has two points of termination. If you'll just look at the last phrase, it speaks of it will not pass away till all be what? Right at the end of the verse, till all be fulfilled. And I know I'm spending some time on detail, but, but this is the way the Spirit of God breathes it out. That last word, fulfill, in verse number 18, is not at all the same word as fulfill in verse 17. Okay? 
Um, and I can even just say this. In, in our English, if I was going to give you the Greek word for verse 17, it would start with the letter P. If I was going to give you, in English, the word in verse number 18, it would start with the letter G. Okay, now I'm doing, that's very simple English. They're not at all the same words. It's not like the root word just has a little, a little spin on it. Now, why am I saying that? Because this word in verse number 18 has reference to something being accomplished. Okay, something being finished. Now, if you say, when is that? When, when will everything be finished? There is no definite point that we have in terms of our finite minds right now that this applies to. Somehow, this is referring to a time when the purpose of God for the scripture will be fully worked out. Okay, there's a time where God's purpose for the scripture is going to be fully worked out. We don't know exactly when that is. What we do know, if I back up one, is that that won't happen until what? Until heaven and earth pass. All right, now that heaven is referring to our physical universe. And not the place where God's dwelling and the place where true believers will be. This, this reference point is talking about the dissolving of the created earth as we know it. Alright? The written word of God will not, and there's actually in, in the text, a double negative. I know a lot of detail. But there's a double negative here that says the written word of God will not in any way at all pass away until the heaven and earth as we know it is dissolved and until every purpose God has for the scripture has been completed. Now, brethren, for the Lord to do all of this, I know we've looked at the detail, but just think about this. For the Lord to say, Verily, and I say unto you, and then to go down to this intricate detail, and then to even add like the double negative. I'm telling you, there's no possibility on the face of the earth that any of this is going away. Okay, that's trying to tell us something about just how much the Savior Himself valued the written word of God and how much God has done to preserve it. Some today actually accuse Bible believers of being guilty of idolatry by giving so much attention to the scripture. Yeah, that, that you ought to just kind of encounter God. You know, feeling God through encounters in nature, um, the, the ethic and the spirit of Jesus, and, and even seeing it in the noblest expressions of human goodness. This is how we learn of God. There is actually one man that has published a letter that he got from a lady. She, he had been teaching on the, the, the ceasing of gifts like tongue speaking and healing and so on. He was doing it from the scripture. A lady wrote him and said, I want to give you a piece of advice that just might save you from the wrath of Almighty God. Put that Bible down and watch what the Spirit is doing in the earth. 
incredible. But this is the way many people are. They just want to feel God through their music, feel God through, uh, through observing Him in nature, feel the ethic of Jesus through all the goodness and the nobility of man, and they're not giving attention to the very words that the Spirit of God breathed out to be put on from pen and paper to the Scripture. But you can't read Jesus' emphasis upon the written preservation of the Scripture and come away with any justification for taking lightly the very words of God. We need to give our attention to exactly what the Spirit of God superintended to be, to be penned. And, and I know I'm saying it in multiple ways, but we need to focus on what the Scripture says and what it means, not the way I like to think about God or the way I feel about God or the way I like to see this passage as such and such. We need to focus on what does it actually say and how has he interpreted his own writing. So Jesus affirmed the Old Testament by direct statement that he didn't come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. He affirmed it by the promise of its written preservation. And then thirdly, notice this in verse number 19, that he affirmed it by attributing greatness to those who honor all of it. He, he affirmed the Old Testament scripture by attributing greatness to those who honor the entirety of the scripture. Those who honor all of it. Look at verse 19. Whosoever therefore shall break one of the least of these commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And you want to, perhaps, if it helps you to stand out, you, you want to draw, you want to circle and draw a line between least commandments and least in the kingdom and then draw right down to great in the kingdom of heaven. Because this is the contrast the Lord is making. Greatness, listen, greatness in the eyes of Jesus is relative to the honor you give to what some might call the least commandments in his word. And this, this use of the expression least commandments I, I'm, is more than likely in light of the Pharisees. And their pattern of grouping commandments into various categories. They had the, you know, the positive do this commands, the negative don't do this commands. They also had the heavy ones and the light ones. Depending on your background, you, you may or may not be familiar with Roman Catholicism's attempts at declaring certain sins as mortal sins. And the label they would give to the others would be venial sins, mild, excusable sins. So, so mortal sins are ones that remove you from standing of the grace of God. If you die in that state, unrepentant state, you end up in hell. But other sins are more slight, and, and they, they might injure your relationship with God, but they wouldn't break it. So, so people of all sorts have been having that type of discussion. The Pharisees had it in their seminaries. The common people were aware of it. What are big bad sins and what are not so bad sins? Okay. 
There, there is some of that in the backdrop. And, and when you read the Old Testament, I think you know that there are sins, for instance, that called for the death penalty, and others didn't. Jesus, in his ministry, will go on to speak of weightier matters of the law. But even with that background, background before anybody dismisses the significance of any part of God's revelation, the Old Testament included, which is under discussion here, you better consider the words of Jesus again. He said that greatness is when people give attention even to the least of the commandments. The word that is translated break, here in verse number 19, whosoever therefore shall break, is translated majority times as loose in the, in the sense of something being released or untied. So this isn't just talking about failing to obey something, but this, this would be that we actually dismiss obedience to some part of God's revelation as inconsequential. That we would have a take-it-or-leave-it attitude. That we would promote that same spirit to others we influence. And brethren, there are, there are scholars... Bible teachers, I mean in the truest sense, there are people who have studied and, and, and they really are scholars in terms of the Hebrew text, the Hebrew scripture, and, and maybe even some things of continuity and discontinuity and so on. And they can help us walk through how we ought to interpret, understand, and apply. But I want to tell you this, anybody, anybody, any influence in your life that leads you to a dismissive, oh, don't worry about it, that's only in one place type of attitude. Anybody who leads you to, oh, well, you know, talk about, you know, reverence in worship is only an Old Testament concept. First of all, I would say it's baloney, but secondly, I would say that that person is dangerous and they're not great in the eyes of God. Anybody who leaves you with some impression that any part of God's word and any obedience to any part of God's word is just kind of a light matter is not great in the eyes of God. There are truths within the scripture that need to guide us in our interpretation Paul taught in Colossians chapter 2 that the death of Christ on the cross has an impact on the believer's relationship to some activities in the Old Testament that were shadows of the substance of Christ. We need to understand what it means to not be under the law, that Romans 6.14 is saying that. We're not under law but under grace in, in, in terms of a package of rules that ultimately decide a man's standing with God. We definitely need to understand scripturally stated purposes for the law how the law can be abused. But what I can't do is have a dismissive spirit towards my obligation to any part of God's Word. And I'll just go back. My purpose isn't to preach on tithing this morning. This pastor asked me about it. But, but what I can't do is this. I can't say, well, the word tithe is only found in the Old Testament, so don't worry about it. 
That's not a helpful teacher and preacher of the Word of God. What Jesus said is true greatness in his eyes is someone that honors the Scripture to the extent that they will do all they can to understand even that Old Testament commandment for the people of that day, but then what the universal truth is that ought to be applied to our day. And then give diligence to put that into practice in their lives and urge others to do it. That's great in the eyes of God. True greatness is approaching the whole counsel of the Word of God as opposed to just picking and choosing when I think it's a big deal and where I don't think it is. With, with these words, Jesus is again affirming the Old Testament Scripture. I know I just mentioned the, the Genesis account of creation in passing, but brother, I just, I'll just go back there to the beginning. You can't be a Christian and espouse the Big Bang Theory or any other evolutionary hypothesis. You'd have to disregard the Genesis account of the creation of the universe, of Adam and Eve, of the fall, the flood, and all of that as being mere fable. But Christ affirmed the authoritative, infallible word of God all the way back to Genesis 1.1. To be a Christian is to also affirm the words that Jesus Christ affirmed. And beyond that one example, these words of Jesus are again stressing that you and I cannot be dismissive of any part of the scripture and its relevance for our lives. We can't do that, listen, without losing something of what God intends for our Christian life. We can't lose that without something of the testimony even that God intends to have through our lives being diminished. Not only will there be direct impact by what we fail to interact with with the Old Testament itself. But that attitude will start to influence the way we approach all of the Scripture. Brethren, I need to not dismiss, oh, brother, it's all those whatever, as <clears throat> not worthy of my time. I need to not dismiss it, not only because of what I miss learning, but I need not to dismiss it because it starts to alter my attitude towards all of the scripture. You cannot give too much attention to exactly what God has written in any part of his word. The degree to which we know and believe and obey the word of God will be the degree to which we really know God and fellowship with God. This is what he has written. Listen, the people that will know God and fellowship with God and grow in the grace and the knowledge of their Lord and Savior will not be people <laughs> who just want to kind of be inspired with wit and wisdom and stories. They will be people who want to actually get into their Bibles and as much as lies within them, master what it says. Because they hear Jesus say things like, I didn't come to throw it down. 
I came to fill it up. <laughs> and I tell you, I'm going to preserve every last part of it. And I want to tell you what is really great in my eyes is somebody that gives attention down to the detail and doesn't dismiss any part of it. That's greatness in my eyes. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And dear friend, I want to...